I'm Bay, and you're listening to Bay Baltimore, a weekly pop culture and society podcast recorded in a quiet neighborhood in Baltimore. This episode, I'm going to talk about a film that was released in 2019, and I'm not even sure it was released in, in theaters. I'd have to dig a little deeper for that, but right now it's a, it's a Netflix film, um, and it is entitled In the Shadow of the Moon. Okay, so it's kind of, um, I wouldn't say it's been a slow December so far, but it's definitely been an interesting one Um, so far. I mean, coming off of Thanksgiving, um, even during Thanksgiving, um, we learned, or at least Thanksgiving weekend, we learned that... um, uh, the UK um, began to, or had planned to, and by the time that you're listening um, to this episode, they will have already um, approved the use of Pfizer's um, vaccine for um, COVID-19 um, and making them the first um, country to do so. And I know that by now several pharmaceutical companies have come out with um, with vaccines of their own with over 90 percent. What do they call it? Over 90 percent rate of shucks. I I forgot it, but basically more than um, 90 percent effective, more than 90 percent effective. Some were 90. I think the Pfizer one was 91 um, percent, and I know the um, there's another one that came out that was 95 percent. The one that's being worked on here that has been worked on here in Baltimore um, with um, at Johns Hopkins um, in partnership with AstraZeneca. I, I don't know that they've released the effectiveness numbers with that thing yet, but um, you know, we'll see. Like, I, I remember Dr. Fauci saying that we would have. We'd probably have a vaccine by the end of the year, and here we are. Um, and now we're talking about the rollout of that thing and who will get it first. I think the UK is obviously, um, I think they're leading with essential workers. And I think that's the, I think I heard that that is um, the move that's going to happen here in the United States. And I was on, I was on a, um, over the weekend, I was on a birthday Zoom for one of my brothers. And, you know, you know how there's you, you get on the Zoom and you get on the Zoom with family and you initially you're yucking it up, talking with everybody. And then there's a lull and but people aren't really ready to get off the Zoom. Um, so you just start talking about other things. And anyway, in this instance, the other thing we started talking about, or one of the other things we started talking about was um, the vaccine and how folks are feeling about it. And naturally, obviously, we know a lot of folks won't be taking a vaccine. But the thing that I've been hearing that I guess I didn't anticipate is that um, at least some of my people are convinced that they shouldn't be in the first round of taking the vaccine. Um, and I've shared this before, um, and shout out to you if this is your first time listening. 
um, to my show. Appreciate you. Um, thank y'all f- who've been listening for a while, um, who've hung in there with me. If you're new again, um, one thing to know about me is that I tend to ramble. Um, but anyway, I talk about a lot of, a lot of things. Um, and sometimes they're relevant to you. And sometimes it's just something to have playing in the background while you're finishing a task. Anyway, um, so thank you in advance for continuing to listen to me while you're completing that task. Anyhow, so um, so because of the nature of my work, I, um, you know, here in Baltimore, I'm in um, a lot of coalition meetings or um, community, not council, I won't say council meetings, but definitely commu- uh, coalition meetings um, with, with uh, you know, our, our cooperatives with um, service organizations that are either serving a particular part of the city, serving Baltimore City, serving a particular part of Baltimore County, or, yeah, that's essentially the type of meetings that I attend. Um, or, or it's serving a certain jurisdiction and they're specific to um, mental health and um, substance use, right? Like that, those are the type of meetings that I, I tend to be in because of the nature of my work. Anyway, so one of the particular meetings that I'm in, it, and actually this is pretty well true everywhere I go, every meeting I go in, there's always somebody from Hopkins University. Um, it's just what it is. They're, I mean, they're right here in Baltimore and Hopkins is a beast of an institution. Anyway, um, and I think I've shared this before, but they literally permeate our culture here in Baltimore City in every way, um, Baltimore City and Baltimore County, um, shoot the state, if I'm being honest, um, the East Coast, if I really want to go there, but definitely Maryland. Anyway, um, so, and I apologize if I sound nasally, it is sinus time, honey. Um, anyway, and I've got a slow, anyway, I won't give you the details, but it's my sinuses if I sound nasally. Um, anyway, so I tend to be in the room with Hopkins doctors anyway. Um, and, but there's this one particular coalition where I attend meetings, um, and it is led by, it's like an offshoot of, um, not an offshoot, but it is a group that is, was essentially started by Hopkins doctors, um, who had a passion to serve in the community. And so sitting around that meeting table, that virtual meeting table, um, you hear a bunch of things. And for the last three months, I've been hearing about this partnership with AstraZeneca and Hopkins and the study that they're, they're doing. Um, and at first it was saying, get ready for trials. We'll need volunteers for the trials and the clinical trials and pausing here real quickly Everybody knows Henrietta Lacks. Everybody knows what Hopkins, uh, you know, that debacle with, not even a debacle, it was deliberate. It was a deliberate action um, that they did with her cells. And even though they made a wonderful uh, medical discovery with her cells, it's, it's like one more example of how, you know, Hopkins has not been um, a partner with Black folks in the community. They've just been uh, something like a robber, uh, or not a robber, but like a bully, um, in many ways in the community. 
um, to in the black community, to the black community um, over the years. And so obviously there's a, uh, a concerted effort to kind of change the narrative a little bit. Um, so yeah, so anyway, um, so they've been pretty delicate kind of easing folks into the conversation about, you know, talking about clinical trials these days because they're trying to overcompensate, um, or because they know, they know their own past, um, and are trying to be better. Um, so anyway, so for the past three months in this particular coalition meeting, I've been hearing about what, um, medical trials and how they do them in the different phases. And, um, one thing that I think people, not that I'm, I'm, you know, trying to tell a person to do a thing. You are, you have agency over your own actions, um, regardless of where you are. And if you choose not to, you have agency over your own actions. Um, yeah. So anyway, um, but, but getting back to my point, I think folks, I know I did not have a a firm grasp on how folks did medical trials. And even after a drug is approved, you know, I, even after a drug is approved, I guess I didn't understand what went into approving a drug. And I know for the last, what, nine months, eight months, nine months at this point, um, we've been hearing about how long it takes, usually that vaccines take years to develop, um, and we were needing it done in months. Um, but I didn't real, but I didn't realize why it took so long. And it's usually because, um, there are different phases. There are different phrase phases of the trial, um, and they need different subjects for each phase. And so phase one, as I'm understanding it, um, again, it's just a misconception, but phase one is where they test the lethality of a particular drug or vaccine. Um, and that's exactly what you, what it sounds like. Um, will the thing take your life? Will it hasten if you, if you have the, if you have, yeah, actually, will it hasten your life? Uh, will, I mean, will it hasten your death? Um, the oncoming of your death, rather. Phase two, once, once it, it has to cross a certain threshold of folks who haven't, um, whose death they think cannot tie directly back to that, um, that drug or that vaccine. And again, I'm, I'm using the best terms that I have available to me because I barely have a grasp of this, but this is what I'm getting. So phase one is lethality. Phase two, um, is still testing lethality, but more so their work. They're trying to see if now it is effective. Now it is effective on folks who do have whatever they're trying to, um, the symptoms they're trying to um, suppress or to get rid of, or if they're trying to essentially cure the thing, um, depending on what it is, whatever. You, you get my meaning. They're trying to test if the thing, if the thing that they've created actually works. They're still testing lethality for the most part, but they're more so testing to see if the thing works. Um, and then in phase three, they're trying to get as many people 
as possible to see if it works on all sorts of people. And so for the past month, they've been in phase three. Here, AstraZeneca and Hopkins have been in phase three. That's what they've been talking about. Um, and in this, um, when it was it? It was October, end, mid to end of October. Um, flyers started to go out. And right now, if you live in Baltimore, um, you see commercials, you see billboards, you see it on the buses, um, advertisements talking about trying to get everyone um, in every socioeconomic um, background, with any, from any socioeconomic background, they're trying to get them into this study because it's still phase three. I think they're ending phase three trials because, um, again, I, I don't think I heard AstraZeneca come out with a percentage of effectiveness like some of the other places, uh, other places, other pharmaceutical um, companies. But um, yeah, they're in phase three where they're just trying to get as many black and brown people in the room, um, old people, young people, um, people with different medical maladies um, or having medical condition, different medical conditions in the room to test if the thing even works on a wide, wide swath of people. And my last few conversations is the, the head of the coalition. I guess that the last thing that I'll say about the coalition is it's headed by a practicing physician. And um, this practicing physician mentioned in w one of the last times that he really made a plea for us as organizations to consider sharing the flyer for the study um, was... You know, we know our history. We know that sometimes when we've created, when organizations have created, medical institutions working with pharmaceutical companies have created vaccines or, or drugs that they haven't been tested on everybody in the community. They've mostly been tested on some people in the community. And typically what, what, he, was, what he was saying is it's typically tested on white people and it is not tested on black and brown people to, to make sure that it is effective. Um, if there was a reason why it wouldn't be effective, they haven't caught it because they haven't been testing. Um, but again, Hopkins is who they are and folks naturally in Baltimore naturally distrust uh, Hopkins because of just sheer evidence of the, their past transgressions against the black community. Um, and again, everybody knows Hen Henrietta Lacks and, and what happened there. Um, but anyway, so they're in this quandary of a, they're, they're in this little precarious situation, which is the, of their own making. Um, but nevertheless, they are bending over backwards to get people to come in the trials. And I know that even from our group of service organizations, um, I know that there have been people that have been sent there because they also had a monetary um, piece that they were offering too for folks who wanted to participate in the trial, who volunteered to participate in the trial. So um, I think that aspect of it was played up. Now, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. Um, I distrust medical, uh, I distrust pharmaceutical companies too. I have, you know, um, yeah, I, I hear you. I hear you completely. I was raised by two people, black folks who, what did, um, uh, uh, Eddie Gloud Jr. say, um, that didn't believe in the myths and the legends of America's greatness and, um, you know, the exceptionalism of America and the goodness, the good nature of America. Um, my 
parents were have always given me a healthy dose of reality ever since I was a child, you know, starting with my brother and, and, and my sister. And actually, no, all of the kids, all, everybody in my family, all the kids in my immediate family, uh, immediate family got a healthy dose of reality from seven, eight, um, in the way that made sense for our brains at that time. But nevertheless, that my parents were never the sugarcoating type. Um, and so, yeah, so they've, I've, I've, I grew up with a healthy distrust for medical institutions and pharmaceutical companies and recognizing that it is advantageous for them to uh, race to come up with these um, cures and these um these um, medicines that will help curb side effects of things, not because not of the goodness of their heart, um, but because it's it's a money making scheme. It, it can make them a lot of money, um, and they can set their own price. And we've had these conversations with that Scarelli Scarelli bro, that guy that um, was the head of a pharmaceutical company that was, I think he might have held the patent for. Um, EpiPen or something like that, or he, they producer of EpiPens that in itself, it could be $25, but that at one point he had shot up the price of the thing to quadruple that size or not even quadruple that, um, the amount, uh, quadruple $25. I think it was more like it had shot up at one point, like $800 or some ridiculous number, um, like that. So over the over the decades, we've been exposing pharmaceutical companies for the scams that they can run, um, and so naturally, people now are uh, have a natural distrust, and I do too. I'm skeptical, but at the same time, people are dying. People are dying, and and if you don't, if you choose not to take the vaccine, that's totally your right. My parents are mulling that over just now. Um, I know the line of work that my, my husband is an essential worker, so he is required to take the flu shot. So I, I don't have a fear and he, he works for Hopkins, y'all. So um, I don't have a fear that there's going to be that there's going to be a push for him to take the vaccine. And if he takes the vaccine, everybody knows how this thing works. It's just like the flu shot. If if one person in your family takes the flu shot, but nobody else in your immediate family that excuse me, let me let me break it down this way. If there are four people in a household and one person takes the flu shot, the likelihood of the other three getting it is pretty high because, again, the person, person one who took the vaccine or who took the flu shot, which is a vaccine, um, could be carrier, could be a carrier of the flu, but they're not being impacted by this. They don't have the symptoms because they're not impacted by it because they're inoculated against it. Um, and I don't even know if I'm using the right terms, but anyway, and they can bring that thing home to the other three. That's for the most part, my understanding of this thing. Right. And so if my hubby has to take the vaccine, it would be silly for me not to take it because he could have it. He could be a carrier and not be impacted by the symptoms, but I could. So anyway, 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 um, so yeah, um, we've got a lot to think about, but I, I don't think I'm going to think too hard about it. I think I'll take it. 
whenever whenever I have access to it. Because here's the other thing. I think the UK in, in I think I, I already mentioned that I'm talking in circles. Um, but yeah, so if, if essential workers will be the first among, um, if, if that's the, if the US's stance will be like the UK's in that um, essential workers will be among the first to have access to it, then maybe, you know, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to take precautions. I don't know. I don't know. There's a lot for me to think about. And I'm sure they're quite sure. Well, I know by the sheer fact that there are many people who are emergency service workers um, or essential workers, because I won't say that because if you could be an essential worker and not be an emergency worker, that's my, that's, that's, let me take that back. So an essential, essential workers, um, we know that there are all types of essential workers, a grocery store, um, clerks are essential workers because they were required to come in and, and help us pay for that. Um, you know, check us out when we were trying, when we were fighting over toilet paper, um, or fighting over whatever commodity that had was gone out or that had run out at the time or was running out. Right. So they're essential workers. And I think everybody knows that by now. Um, anyway, so yeah, so I don't know. There's a lot for us all to think about because I would have thought that the United States and everybody would be in a better place to figure out who was going first, like definitively. Um, but no, anyway, um, and I won't go into that. Um, but yeah, so I hate to be a jacket down here, but that's what we've been, we've been talking about. The other thing that we've been talking about, at least my little, my little circle, um, has been talking about, but not super deeply, but nevertheless, and we haven't, if I'm being honest, I'm the only one that's kind of in my little circle that is wrapping my head or taking the time to wrap my head around the vaccine and what we'll do and starting that conversation with my, my circle of friends and, and my family, because that is how I process things, especially heavy things. I have to talk about it and I talk about it early so that by the time you have to deal with the situation or I have to deal with the situation, I've had time to adjust to whatever reality that I'll have to live with. Um, so anyway, that's the only reason why I brought it up. It's not as if my whole family is spending time on it, even though it brought, was brought up on the birthday Zoom. It's not like we had a long conversation about it. It was a hit or a quitter. And again, the idea was, well, I don't want to be among the first to take the vaccine. And I don't know that that's the right line of thinking, especially since you won't be among the first. You'll be among the first of the general public to have free access to it, whatever that looks like. But you won't be the first to take the thing that's been done. Um, it's been done already. Anyway, but I just wanted to put that out there because I don't know that a lot of people know that information because I know I didn't. Um, and even though I've been around Hopkins doctors for in this role that I've been in for over four years at this point, um, this was the first time that in these last couple of months, it was the first opportunity that I had to understand medical trials. Even though medical trials have been happening since I've been in Baltimore, uh, before I've been in Baltimore, but I've known about medical trials since I've been here from the very beginning, but I didn't know how they worked. Um, anyway, but switching gears, the other thing, the thing that my immediate friend group has been talking about and cackling about 
is that um, foolishness that happened at True Cafe in Texas, Dallas, Texas, where the um, Black-owned cafe or Black-owned um, restaurant that uh, the um, proprietor was fussing out, was caught on camera fussing out um, these uh, women who had been twerking on the table and, and dancing in the, in the aisles and stuff. Um, and he came out and fussed about, fussed at them and the other patrons about, uh, basically <laughs> I, you know, I asked to open this establishment for us and I want us to have a certain uh, decorum and a, a behavior standard and all of that stuff. And then of course, because Twitter is Twitter, um, folks immediately launched into this guy and began to research this guy after the video itself went viral. Come to find out this person, um, I mean, respectability politics was all over that, that weird, weird rant. Because not only were you yelling at the women, but you told the DJ to stop the music. And you, you were essentially yelling at everybody in the restaurant. Like, you don't want nobody's money if you yelling in the restaurant. If you, I, who yells at their patrons? Put them out. Put, put, the, put the ones that are acting out, put them out. But don't yell at everybody. Anyway. But um, so long story short, you know, the receipts were dug up that um, for a New Year celebration, I think it was new coming into 2020 New Year's, um, there were party goers, male party goers who were dancing on top of tables and things. Um, and he there was no the, the proprietor was nowhere in sight um, and everybody was just, you know, laughing and carrying on. Um, and so not unlike what these women were doing. Um, so there was that discrepancy. And then the other thing is people started looking at the, the food menu, um, and the drink menu and in his tirade, the owner's tirade, one of the things that he said was like, this is a respectable place. I wanted to make an upscale restaurant. And one of the things that uh, Black Twitter was picking apart is the fact that, okay, so you want to make an upscale restaurant, but you got low country cuisine on here. You got catfish nuggets, collard greens, and all of this stuff, right? Which just your cuisine doesn't make your, doesn't, is not the thing that makes your restaurant low class or not, not high class. That's not it. But I guess what, one of the things that we're saying, so you've got these comfort foods here that we're accustomed to getting in just about any little hole in the wall restaurant. Then the drink menu, you have essentially cocktails, Hennessy cocktails, um, served in a Douce bottle. So this is a hard liquor. This is hard liquor. So you have these cocktails, you have this comfort food, then you have a DJ playing all the grimiest hits you can, can imagine that you would hear in the club, right? I asked hubby, cause hubby was kind of out of the loop cause he's not on Twitter like that. He's, he's still on Facebook, like per, primarily um, communicates through Facebook. But I'm on Twitter. No, I'm just playing. Um, no, so he primarily uh, communicates on Facebook, and everybody knows that Facebook gets the thing like a week later than Twitter and Instagram. More, but most so Twitter. Um, and so he hadn't heard of it yet, and so I told him like the the details. And then when I got to the DJ part, he was like, 
So when you hear a DJ though, like if you have a DJ in a restaurant, you get up and dance. You boogie in your seat, you get up and dance. And then he was like, and then you got these big old cocktails in a Douce bottle. And then it's like this, the, the two, these don't make sense. This is like, you're creating a club atmosphere, but in a restaurant and you mad that people are getting up and dancing. So what's the, what's the issue? And I was like, exactly. I don't know if his issue was these black women and that he, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what his issue was. I don't pretend to know his issue. I just know that it was, it had respectability politics all over it. Um, and he was being weird and he's kept going with this. He's, he has, it, uh, Black Twitter has alleged that he has um, created a new Twitter account and started liking all the derogatory comments about the patrons that, in all honesty, he should have just kicked them out. He Because apparently he had told them once to calm down and to chill out during, during brunch. <coughs> and then he had to come back when they got back up on the table. At that point, baby, you should have put him out. And now you're the, the fool looking silly, hollering at grown people, and many of which didn't do anything but come to your restaurant and order some food. You look, you look dumb. And anyway, um, yeah, so I don't know. I just, that's, that's been something that folks have been hooting, hooting and hollering about because it's, the hypocrisy is just delicious because how you going how you going to blame a person for acting like your restaurant is a club if you are essentially treating your restaurant like a club? The only difference is you come out and yell at them when they treat your place like a club. I don't get it. Anyway, um, but yeah, so, but that's not what I wanted to talk to y'all about. I just wanted to put that out there because I just think it is. When I saw it, I wasn't sure because the I'm going to be honest with you. I saw the video when it came out, like the video of the rant when it came out and I wasn't sure what I was looking at. And the first time I saw it on, on my Twitter feed, I didn't watch it because the title, the title said uh, something to the effect and and, uh, excuse me for saying this, if it triggers anyone, I apologize now. Um, but, uh, watch this man commit suicide. And I'm like, so I'm not going to do that because why would I do that? And so I initially just skipped it because I'm just like, you're not finna traumatize me today. Um, But I saw it again and then I saw somebody's comment on it and I was like, this guy is wild. And so I ended up watching it um, with the sound off, of course, because again, I wasn't sure what I was about to watch and I certainly didn't want to hear anything. Um, So, but then I just saw that he was just lecturing folks. And so I turned, I watched it again, I turned the sound on and I was like, what, what? And it was just bizarre. So by this point, it's been out for, has it been a week at this point? So like Facebook should have it by now. Um, Anyway, um, or maybe not quite a week. Maybe it's been like three or four days. Anyway, by the time this recording is coming out. But anyway, yeah, so I don't know. It's just bizarre, but it's one more, one more of those things where it's like you create a thing and then you want, you want to create this So you want to create this atmosphere, but in order for that atmosphere, in order for you to create the atmosphere, you need the people to come in and do it. And then ultimately, one of the things that people get confused is it's just like art. You want, you want your art to be received a certain way, but ultimately when you release that thing to the world, however it is received is what you got to go with. 
right? And so the same thing is true with a restaurant. You wanted that thing to be upscale. And I don't even know if that was just something he was pulling out of his behind because he was mad or not. And he just wanted to chastise them women. But you don't get to say ultimately what the culture of your restaurant is. Your your, your, um, customers do. The, The nature of the customers you attract do. So like, I don't know. I, uh, it's very weird how preachy he was, but it was like the sermon was terrible. Um, anyway, so if you haven't seen that video, you should probably, I don't know, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe don't watch it actually, because he sounds stupid. Um, and of course it, yeah. Anyway, he sounds stupid and elitist and it's just the receipts that have been put out. And the memes at this point are hilarious. There's this one particular meme of this woman who is initially acting like she's a, uh, she's a customer of the restaurant. And then she also plays a waiter, a waitress in the restaurant. And it's just hilarious. It's like a minute, a minute and nine seconds, something like that long. Um, of course it's a TikTok, but it is hilarious. Um, because the hypocrisy is just, you could taste it. It's delicious. The, how ridiculous that guy sounded. Um, because again, what he was hollering at them saying that he was creating was not what, it's not what it is. You essentially created a real good club that has a bomb. You, you, you created a club that has a bomb restaurant with tables. So, yeah, you created a club that has more table space than, than dancing space. But nevertheless, you, it's another club. Um, anyway, moving on. Um, so I do want to get to the movie um, that I wanted to talk about, that I wanted to review. Um, and I got to be honest with you, this thing, it sucked me in because of course I was watching it because it had a black woman lead. But as I watched it, I think I, I, I began developing some thoughts about the film. And I think ultimately the film um, probably wanted me to think something else about it, but I ended up walking, it, it wanted me to think one thing about it and I ended up walking away thinking another Um, there are ish, there are, (laughs) there are issues with this film that were hard for me to get over. And actually the more that I think about it, the more I'm like, so who was, who reviewed this script? Um, who was it that watched this film and still didn't say we might want to reconsider this aspect of it? Like there was, there are some things that made it into this film that I'm curious as to why it did. Um, but you know, when you make a thing, I'm sure I'm not a filmmaker, but I imagine when you make a thing and you have a whole number of different hands in it, sometimes you just miss things and it is what it is. But overall, what I will say, I'll just come right out and tell you, I like the film because the concept is bomb. I like sci-fi. I like, um, time travel. I also like the fact that it was a black female lead, but outside of that, it gets kind of, there are some problems with it. Um, but anyway, so I'll, in the next segment, I won't, I will try to keep it cute. I will try to keep it brief. We'll see how that goes. Um, but I will review the film. I'll spoil the heck out of it too. So if you don't want to, if you want to have a chance to watch the thing, you can cut this off now and cut it back on after you've watched it. Or, um, you can just let me keep talking um, because you're half listening anyway, but that's okay. Cause I don't care. I appreciate that you have me on. Um, that sounds ungrateful, but I really do mean it. Um, 
people are listening to this show and I appreciate y'all. Um, I don't care how you're listening to it. You're listening to particular episodes too, which tell me that you actually are listening to some of these specifically right now. Folks are listening to Twisted Melodies, which was my review of the one man show Twisted Melodies um, that I wonder how he's doing. I wonder if he's able to, to put this thing on demand. I hope he did. Um, or I hope he is anyway, but, um, you're listening to your watch. You're listening to that. You're also listening to the weekend, the film that the review about that movie. Um, and yeah, there's one other one, but I can't think of it. I think it was the unsolved mystery one, the rooftop one. Um, I can't remember. Um, but definitely you're listening to twisted melodies, which, you know, it's Donny Hathaway. I mean, come on. Anyway, but um, yeah, so I, I appreciate y'all for liking and sharing, um, rating, positively rating the show and sharing it with folks that you think might be into it. Also, if you are just one of them that's listening to a particular episode a bunch of times because you like it, that's fine too. I appreciate you. Um, anyway, so yeah, so in the next segment, I will try to keep it cute. I'll try to keep it brief. Um, we'll see how that goes because I do ramble. Um, but anyway, um, and I will talk about the movie for what it is. And then I'll talk about the pitfalls too. Um, and then, yeah, I'll wrap this puppy up. Okay. So let me get into it. Um, so let me see if I can find the. So, okay. So this film was released September of 2019. Um, and it was directed by Jim Mickle. And it stars Boyd Holbrook as Locke, Cleopatra Coleman as Raya, Michael C. Hall as Holt, Bokeem Woodbine as Maddox, Rachel Keller as Jean, Sarah Dungdale as Amy and Rudy Darmalingam as uh, Naveen Rayo, Dr. Rayo. Okay, so for the purpose of this conversation today, I'm mostly going to spend a lot of time talking about Locke, Holt, and Rhea. Um, I will talk about Maddox and I will talk about Jean and Amy to a certain extent and Dr. Rayo, but the, I mean, the plot of the whole thing really focuses around Locke and Raya, Raya, Raya and Holt. Um, and everybody else is kind of just there. Um, anyway, so, um, okay. So it is 6.2 out of 10 in IMDb, 58% uh, fresh and rotten tomatoes, 48% um, out of 100 on Metacritic, and 78% of Google users like this film. I have watched this film, obviously. I have not rated it because I don't know that I don't like it but I don't know that I love it. Um, and again, it has a, that's largely due to the fact that it has a lot of weird issues. So let me just, let me give you the synopsis and then we'll go from there. So long story short, um, Locke is a police officer whose wife, Jean is pregnant with their daughter, their first daughter, Amy. Um, and Holt, who is, um, is Jean's brother, is a detective, 
Locke has a, a Locke is a beat cop and his partner is Maddox. Um, so the movie opens up with Locke and Gene, um, basically, you know, him waking up, them both laying in the bed, the alarm going off, him waking up, making them pancakes and eggs for breakfast. This is important, um, because it's a through line. Um, this breakfast item, um, the bacon, eggs, and pancakes make their debut here, but then they, it's a, basically, it, it pops up specifically for a specific reason, um, multiple times in the film. But anyway, opening scene is Locke making breakfast for himself and his wife, pregnant wife, Jean, um, at 10 p.m. because he's a beat cop and he's working the night shift. And he's working the night shift for a purpose. He's, he's you know, his wife is saying, I'm, I'm over this. This is getting to be annoying that I'm eating breakfast for dinner. Um, and these late night shifts are annoying. And he's like, well, it won't be for long because he's trying to make um, captain or he's trying to make detective. Um, he and Maddox, his partner, are trying to make detective. So anyway, so we get this little tidbit. Um, the plot itself makes it seem like he's a super ambitious police officer and he loves to solve crime for the benefit of advancing his career. I didn't really get that from here, but whatever, that's what the plot says. Um, anyway, so we flash forward and the basis of this whole thing, uh, of this whole movie is that, well, the catalyst for this whole film that propels us through time travel and exploring space, the space-time continuum and exploring past events. Ultimately, this, this movie asks some fundamental questions, a fundamental question, which is if you could change, if you could pick a particular period in time where someone's very first thought of anarchy or the very first thought that a terrible person had that if, if you could erase that person, you could erase that thought, would you then also erase all the terrible crimes that they committed? Um, you know, or the, the, would you kill a revolution if you killed the leader before even first, they even first had that thought? That is essentially, I have told you the, the whole point of the film. That is it. Um, now how do we get there? Okay. So Locke and Maddox, um, they catch a case essentially, um, and a series of cases and, um, uh, Holt is in there too, because again, he's the detective investigating these cases, but long story short in the, the time place where the film opens is 1988 and they catch a series of, of cases where people have been hemorrhaging um, blood and suddenly, as if to say that there was no warning, these people just began to hemorrhage and died. Um, and they're trying to figure it out and come to find out that there's a through line between all of the victims that they've found. They have puncture wounds at the back of their neck, which means that um, somebody is doing this to them. It's not natural causes but something is doing these, something is, someone is doing this to them. And the reality of it is that nothing else connects these victims. They're all different backgrounds, different ethnicities for the most part. Um, and so nothing is connecting them. So what, what's going on here? Um, so as they begin to investigate, 
they come to understand, they find, um, basically they find a few people that have fought the person that is doing this and come to find out it's a black woman. Um, and you've seen the trailer, it's the, the bald headed black woman um, in, the, in the blue hoodie who's doing this, actually she's on the poster. And anyway, so they seek, they try to find her basically. Um, and long story short, we get the subway scene that you saw in the, um, in the, in the early, in the trailer actually, where, um, Holt, who is a, he's not a detective, he's a beat cop, but nevertheless, he wants to make detective. And so he drags his, he drags his, um, partner along you know, in investigating, running these the, the leads down on this particular case and trying to find this black woman as if, um, this black assailant, as if um, they were, he was a detective. Because again, that's what he wants to, he wants to make detective. Meanwhile, Holt recognizes this case is going to be pretty huge for his career. He's got political ambition. He wants to move up in the ranks and, you know, have more authority and things like that. So, this is boring. It's a, it was that that aspect of the movie was boring to me. It's like I don't care your ambition. I want to know about this woman. I want to know what the heck is happening. Why is she doing this? Because I've already seen the trailer, and I know that there's something there's something interesting going on here. I know it's a sci-fi film. Um, so what's going on? That's what I wanted to hear about. Anyway, so here we are to the subway station. The reason why in the well, in the trailer, you don't see, you only see Locke and uh, Raya, the black woman. The reason why you don't see uh, Maddox is because he's gotten hurt. And in this film, Maddox is supposed to be older than Locke, which seems weird to me because they try to age him. They try to make him look old in, in 1988. Like he's got, he's got hair, but it looks like it's receding and it makes him look a little bit older than Locke. Locke just looks like a guy with a mustache, like he looks about in his 30s, early 30s, something like that. Maybe he's supposed to be in his early 20s, but he actually looks like he's in his 30s. And Bukim looks like he's in his 30s too, even though they're wanting, it feels like they want him to look like he's in his 40s. Anyway, so, but, uh, but, uh, and I keep calling Bukim uh, Maddox. Maddox has got an um, hurt. And so, but uh, Locke has kept going after Raya, I've forgotten how Maddox got hurt, but he got hurt because of something that Riot had done in trying to get away from the both of them. And anyway, so Locke pursues Raya down into a subway station. Oh, by the way, this is taking place in Philly. This whole thing takes place in Philly. Ironically, though, the only person, the only actor, the only lead actor that has a Philly accent is Holt. Everybody else tries to have an accent. It's not very good. Um, even Holtz goes in and out sometimes, but it's the strongest of everybody's. Um, and Maddox, he don't even try to have an accent. Like Bokeem Woodbine is from New York and he essentially has a New York accent. He tries to have a Philly accent, but it ends up just being a New York accent. Anyway, um, and then Jean don't even, I don't think she tries. If she did, I did, I barely heard it. Um, anyway. Which is frustrating to me, just as an aside, because man, if you're gonna be in a particular city and that city has an accent or that region 
that that city is in has an accent, I want to hear that accent in everybody. And I want to hear it just in one person. Like if you set a film in Baltimore, I want to hear the black Baltimorean accent if you have black actors. I want to hear the white Baltimorean accent. If they're supposed to be from Baltimore, I want to hear that accent. Like there have been several movies set in Baltimore and ton, most of the artists, most of the actors don't have the accent. The only folks that got it real, real, real right, from my opinion, is um, is American Horror Story, the circus, the circus, what is it, the freaks, where, uh, what's that woman's name, Kathy Bates. That woman is from Kentucky. I swore she was from uh, Dundalk. I swore she was from Dundalk because she had that thing. She had that uh, accent down to a science. And if you were from the Baltimore area, the metropolitan Baltimore area, you know what I'm talking about. You know how folks from Dundalk sound. Um, anyway, and everybody knows The Wire had the Baltimore accent down because they had bald, they hired Baltimore actors, native Baltimore actors, um, who that's just how they talk. Um, anyway, so, so yeah, if you're gonna, if you are, if you are shooting a film, you shoot in a series in a region, in a city that's in a region that has a particular dialect and the characters are supposed to be natives, baby, you better have that accent. You better have it down. And unfortunately, this film only, like I said, only Holt had the accent and he lost it sometimes, but he got it back. Like he, he had it more than he lost it in the film. But anyway, that's just a pet peeve of mine. Um, says the person that only watches films and doesn't make them and doesn't hire actors and things like that. I know, I know, I know. Anyway, but I still have my opinions. Anyway, so, okay, so, um, so anyway, we make it to the train station, which was in the trailer. By the way, like, sometimes I really hate how people do these trailers because you give away some of the best parts of the thing in the trailer. So what the heck is the point of watching the film? And I almost feel like they gave too much away in the trailer for this thing because the train scene was huge. The train scene was huge and what else was in there? Um, him understand him aging through the years chasing her, but her not aging, that was in there. Like we didn't, there are ways that you could tease the movie without telling us essentially the plot in the daggone, um, in the daggone trailer. Anyway, so, so there is a, there is a scene between the both of them where she in the train station where, you know, this is the end of essentially act one. Act one is just 1988 and the, the events that lead up to her first, their first encounter, uh, Locke and Raya anyway. And she tells him, he, she says, congratulations and sorry for Jean. Um, and he's like, what the heck are you talking about? Again, his wife is pregnant. And what we hear when he goes after Raya, but what he doesn't understand, he, maybe he hasn't processed it, but a police officer, before he took off after, before he and his partner Maddox took after, took off after um, Raya, a police officer was trying to get him um, because his wife was going into labor. Um, but he didn't hear that because uh, in the film, what they wanted was for him to really be focused on trying to get Raya um, and, and take her down and, and finish this case. And so anyway, so flash forward to him being in the train station with Raya and they've fought, they, he's, he's tracked her down and she says, 
she says essentially, you know, what I've just said, which is congratulations on your baby and sorry about Jean. Um, and then he's like, what? And he pulls a gun out and she's like, is this where it happens? And I think he shoots her and then he shoots her in the hand and then she falls though. Um, somehow or another, she, she beats his tail, which is never really explained. I'll tell you that now. We never really hear, we never understand why she's able to whoop an apparently physically fit, well in shape, 30s, early 30s uh, lock, why she's able to whoop his tail. She's clearly in her 20s and she doesn't have superhuman strength, or at least that's never explained that she has superhuman strength. She just whoops his tail one-on-one. And actually she'd be, she'd be whooping, whooping behind the whole movie. And it's never really explained how she's able to whoop everybody behind. Um, but nevertheless, she whoops his tail and then she drags him to a bench, to a subway bench, and she takes his own cuffs and, and locks him to that cuff or, or cuffs him to that bench. Anyway, but in their scuffle, I guess, after she had done that and she was about to leave him, I guess he trips her and she falls into an oncoming train. And I think we see that in the trailer too, which is stupid. Um, And anyway, she dies. And supposedly at this point, the case is over. Um, She's been crushed to bits um, and he's... Locke and Maddox get a promotion. You know, everybody, you know, they're the heroes. They solved the case. They got the killer of all of these people. And scene one ends essentially with um, a very heartbreaking scene where in the hospital where Raya's body is being taken, uh, Locke is Locke is there because Maddox is there too. And again, I'm like, Philly does have multiple hospitals. Even in the 80s, I know it had multiple hospitals, but we'll keep it cute. Anyway, but so Maddox is in the hospital. Raya's body is in the same hospital. And uh, again, he's, you know, following up the lead, trying to figure out, you know, what's what with that. And then his wife happens to be in the same hospital, too. And um, she's giving birth. And a police officer initially... um, Locke is following her body on the gurney, um, trying to basically just trying to get any, I'm sorry, I just had to rip a tissue, um, get any, um, any evidence from her that he can find. And, and you hear me walking on my floorboards, I'm sure. Um, anyway, but he's snatched away, um, by a Another police officer says, you got to go. Your wife is in labor. So he goes, he goes to his um, wife's side and Holt is there because again, Gene is Holt's sister and that's, he's, she's about to deliver Holt's niece. Um, and it's at this point where it's at this point where there are complications. And for a brief second, Holt, um, Locke is able to talk to Gene and she's pale and she, she begins hemorrhaging. And so you know what happens, of course she dies. She dies in childbirth and there's this weird scene that I know that they meant to be touching but it only made me angry where she literally dies and um, but before they're notified that she dies, a nurse comes and puts Amy, their child, in Locke's hands and he gets to bond with her and then 30 seconds later, a doctor comes out and says, you know, we hear music, we don't hear what he says, but um, Holt is by uh, Locke's side 
and Locke's daughter, Amy's side, while the doctor is speaking to Holt, saying Gene didn't make it. And Locke breaks down and, no, Holt breaks down and Locke is just like holding his baby, as in, what do I do now, sort of thing. And I'm like, so was this scene really necessary? Was it necessary that she died? Was it necessary that Jean died? I'm confused. Like, what is the point of this? What, what's, what's going on here? I, that was my fir- the first time I raised eyebrows. Um, like, I thought it was strange that he didn't immediately go to his wife's side when she gave birth, but I think moviegoers love, or movie makers love to, to remind us that men are trash and need to be, and, and can be children, and that, you know, sometimes they need to be told to do the right thing because they won't naturally do the right thing. I was like, okay, well, maybe it's one of those things. But then when she died and they put a fine point on, on it that she was not no longer going to be in the film, that, you know, he was left holding his baby. And 30 seconds later, she, you know, he was told that she was dead. I was just like, I don't get it. Why is this so doggone dramatic? And why is this so, it didn't feel like it had a place. Like, did I need to see this? I don't, I don't know that I needed to see it. I don't even know that she needed to die for the rest of this film to happen, but whatever. Um, so anyway, the act one ends with Amy, um, Amy being born, Jean dying and Holt sitting or Holt and, and, um, Locke sitting in the hospital after having wrapped up essentially the case of Raya and the um, people that she killed. Okay, so flash forward nine years later, uh, a copycat has begun essentially killing people in the same way that Raya had killed folks. Um, And now Locke and Maddox are detectives and Holt is something of a higher position. I don't know police rankings, but um, he's something in a higher position. And the, you know, they're investigating this case. They got it again. They're investigating it. Um, and there are protests now nine, on the nine year anniversary of Raya's death. And of course they Weirdly put in here in this film, black people protesting and and spotlighted a woman because, again, they wanted to put a fine point on how black women are leading everything. So this black woman is on TV in this movie. They they show this black woman talking about uh, essentially leading the protest, talking about um, the police injustice, how this black woman mysteriously or conveniently died in police custody. Um, and why couldn't they just take her in instead of her dying? Which is, is, is the sentiment that we express that has been expressed for years publicly in the Black Lives Matter movement and all the protests that have been happening consistently since 2015. Um, probably before that, actually, 2014, maybe even 2013, but definitely in the mid teens. Um, anyway. So, but before we get there, the other anniversary, so we're, we've got protest happening. We've got the killings happening again. And we, and at the, at the time, this is, um, this is now 96, my bad. This is uh, 1996, nine years later. 
Um, um, yeah. So, um, so we've got the protest about Raya's death. We've got the copycat killings. Um, Maddox and, and Locke are detectives now. And Amy is nine years old. It's Amy's birthday. The scene actually opens up. Act two opens up. And it's her birthday, but she's making pancakes for herself while her father is having, is trying to get, pull himself together in his bedroom. He's still living in the same house that he was living in nine years ago when Jean passed away. Um, and it's clear that he's still impacted by her death. And he's clearly not doing well because his nine-year-old daughter is expertly, expertly, I don't know why I said it that way, expertly making her own pancakes and breakfast on her birthday, which I thought was trifling. And again, like, y'all are, this is, I don't, I'm frustrated by that scene. It was dumb. It was stupid. And again, I know you're trying to get him to seem like a mess. This has been done before and I don't want to, it's not interesting or intriguing to me anymore. Um, anyway, but that's just me. So watching it, she, so we go through the role, the beginning of this day, he promises to take her to the zoo for her birthday. He gives her a locket or a, a charm for a bracelet that once belonged to Jean. Um, and she's super thrilled because her daddy gave her a present on her birthday. And he, she also knows it's a sad day because she's also reminded that it's a sad day because they go see mommy's grave, right? Um, and then at mommy's grave, right before they're supposed to be going to uh, the zoo, because Amy really wants to see some sort of bears who only come out in the morning. Um, he gets a call from Holt, who says it's happening again, right? So the copycat killings are happening. So he takes his daughter to the police station, and this is where we see the um, this is where we see the protest, and we see on the TV screen the black woman talking about why couldn't they just take Raya into custody and all of that stuff. And then Raya, uh, not Raya, but um, Amy, as they're exiting um, Locke's car and they're going into the police station, there's like a TV on and they're passing the TV and Amy is caught by the words that the black woman is saying um, about Raya not being taken into custody, um, but rather conveniently dying. Um, And uh, Amy is like, well, what is all, what are, what are they mad about? Everybody seems mad. And then Locke says, <laughs> very flippantly says, sometimes people are only happy when they're mad. You, you, you'll know that. You'll understand that better when you get older. And I'm like, okay, so now you, you're insulting me now. So not only are you, not, not only are you insulting my intelligence by putting a fine point on the fact that you really want us to know that Locke is a, a mess um, and a mess in every way. And he was a terrible human. He wasn't a very good human being um, because he was so obsessed with this case and so obsessed with Raya, which how can you possibly be that obsessed after three days, like after a couple of days? But anyway, it's just it didn't do a good job of setting up the obsession with Raya in the case. And then, you know, now you show that he's a wreck and he's really not a good father because instead of making his daughter pancakes and then allowing her to sit and eat and then taking a minute to go cry, she's left to make her own pancakes. But he's supposed to, anyway, it's bizarre. And then you make this comment out of the blue talking about 
some people just like to be mad. And I'm like, so that was more about the director than it was about the character. That didn't seem like it even fit the character. You know what I mean? Even though he was they, the the black woman that was on the um, the black woman that was talking, essentially seeming to be the the leader, the leader of the protest said, and the detective who um, allegedly killed her is now, or the the officer that allegedly killed her is now a detective. You gave him a promotion for killing her. Um, even though there was something there, like you could explore this conversation without being weird. They just had to be weird by making him say that weird, that stupid statement and making him sound racist. If I'm going to be honest with you, because let's be real. Here's the other thing. There's racism laden in this whole film. Um, one of the, in the first act, one of the, one of the actors or the characters that pushes, basically helps, helps them to know, helps Maddox and and lot to know that um, Raya is black is because one of the witnesses, uh, one of the witnesses that have seen her and was attacked by her before she died, um, said, "Yes, yeah, she looked like she didn't belong here because she was black." And I'm like, "What?" Is... <sighs> film was stupid. I'm sorry. There were aspects of it. Not sorry. There were aspects of this film that were dumb, and that was one of them. And they just keep coming for me. Um, and that's why uh, ultimately I feel duped by this movie because I really thought it was going to be something it's not. Um, I, I thought the, the, anyway, I'll keep going. No, I'll say this. I thought the black woman, I thought Raya was going to be a hero. And in the end, they wanted her to be a hero, but I didn't feel like she was a hero. I felt like this film was stupid. Um, <laughs> that was a childish response, but it, you, I just, I, I wanted to really love this film, but the more I'm talking about it, the more I really don't. Um, but I encourage you to watch it because maybe you'll get a different, <laughs> maybe you'll get something different out of it. I don't know. Um, but anyway, so blah, blah, blah. He's a terrible person and he's a terrible father at this point to a nine-year-old because let's be real. I'll just get, skip to it. Um, and act two, he spends the entire time, essentially her birthday chasing Raya. Raya is, uh, he spends Amy's birthday chasing Raya. So not only does he not manage to make her breakfast, Amy breakfast, and he only manages to give her a gift, um, they don't even go to the zoo at all. Amy spends her entire birthday in the police station. Seriously, all day in the police station because Locke and it drags Maddox into researching and continuing to investigate the evidence that they stopped um, investigating at Raya's death in 88. So they spend the whole day going back and forth, finding different people and all of that stuff. Um, and long story short, the, the second act ends essentially in an airfield for the most part, um, or the beginning of the end is in an airfield. And Locke has tracked um, Raya down to this particular airfield where she is going to uh, steal a plane. And the only reason why they've tracked him to an airfield is because in 88, when she was pushed in front of the, when she fell in front of the train and died, she had a set of keys on her to an airplane. But in 88, the airplane that she had keys to hadn't come out yet. Um, And so anyway, so he goes on the hunt to track her and one thing that I'm, I'm missed, but in the very beginning, in the very beginning of the, the second act, 
we're introduced to Dr. Rayo, who essentially tries to explain to Maddox and Locke that this isn't a copycat. This is the person that you, this is the person that you um, encountered in 88. It's the same person. And the only reason why it's the same person because every nine years, the moon aligns itself in such a way that people can essentially time travel. And he just blurted out the fact that he thought that Raya was a time traveler. And of course, Maddox and Locke did not believe him and they walked away from him. And then there's this weird moment where you have Dr. Rayo just standing there looking deflated and defeated, um, but also determined a little bit. And so he goes away. And so Locke was introduced to this idea, but he scoffed at it. And then he begins to run down the leads from 88 with Maddox. But then flash forward to the end of act, um, the end of act two. And the only reason why he goes to that airfield is because the keys that they, that were found in evidence from Raya are to an airplane that wasn't made until now. Um, and there now is 96. So anyway, so he goes to the airfield where those planes are um, and he meets the guy who's the hangar owner, I guess. And long story short, Raya is there at the same time. He didn't know it, but Raya is there. And this is the point where she takes the plane and she gets the keys. And anyway, in the scuffle, um, Maddox is trying to save or so what you need to know is that Locke goes ahead without Maddox. Maddox busted his leg, remember in 88. And so he has a limp now. So Locke jumps the airfield fence. Maddox isn't going to do that. Maddox stays outside by the car. Um, anyway, but somehow or another, Raya whoops Locke's behind again and ties him up. But somehow or another, before she's, he's completely tied up, he's able to call Maddox. And Maddox hears that Raya has captured him in the hangar um, owner. And yeah, there he goes to his rescue and calls police officers and stuff right before um, Raya does anything rash. And so, um, so yeah, so long story short, uh, Maddox finds his way into the, into the hangar and tries to get the drop on Raya. And of course he does not get the drop on Raya. Raya turns around and shoots him in the head. Maddox is dead. Um, and so as, as Locke is trying to collect himself of the fact that his friend is dead, Raya grabs him. He's still chained up or he's still tied up, grabs him. Um, I think she either knocks him out or she just grabs him and, and forces him at gunpoint into the plane. Any, no, no, no. She knocks him out and then drags him and puts him into the plane. Um, again, don't know where she got this superhuman strength, very confused by it, but nevertheless, um, so the sin, the, the scene is about to conclude, um, um, Locke wakes up and he's in, he's in the plane and they're flying over the Atlantic. Again, they're in Philly. They're flying over the Atlantic and Raya, you know, basically drops another hint that she knows more about him, but that she's not going to tell anymore because she's already told him too much. And he's trying to convince her to let him go and to turn herself in. And she's like, I'm bored with this conversation. So she opens the door to the airplane, which I didn't think you could do. I figured the G-force winds would keep it closed, but maybe, I don't know, maybe it's different when you're in a single engine plane. Anyhow, um, so they, she opens the door and pushes 
lock out over the ocean. And remember now, his hands are bound. So she pushes him out of the plane over the ocean. He falls into the ocean, splat, kerplunk. And of course, the impact knocks him out, right? And so you would think he would drown at this point because his hands are bound and he's knocked out. So you would think he would drown, but oh no. The next morning, we see uh, a dazed and bewildered uh, Locke pulling himself, dragging himself out of the Atlantic and onto the shore. And hands, were they still bound? I can't remember if they were still bound, but anyway, drags himself to the shore. And we see immediately and hear that there's a fire happening on the shore. Come to find out it's the plane that Raya and Ryan, were, uh, Raya and Locke were in. And the plane is in flames. And of course, the police officers and the, and the emergency personnel and uh, Holt are on the scene. But which seems funny because, again, well, anyway, I won't question. I know Philly has multiple police departments, but somehow or another, Holt and his police department are on the scene and not anyone else's. Um, anyway, but it's a movie, so shut up, shut up, shut up. Anyway, um, so yeah, so long story short, of course, Raya is nowhere to be found in that plane, um, not even her remains, and the only one is there is um, Locke. And so Locke is being tended to and Holt is talking to him, and Holt is, just blurts out, she's a time traveler, and uh, not Holt, but um, Locke blurts out, she's a time traveler. Um, and of course, Holt is like, what are you talking about? And he's like, the, the, the second act ends with him saying, she's just going to keep coming back. She's a time traveler. She's just going to keep coming back. Um, and we get a last final shot at Holt. And it's clear that Holt doesn't believe him. And not only does he not believe him, but now he thinks that his brother-in-law is slipping. Um, he's slipping into madness. Um, and, you know... Rightly so, he spent a whole day, his daughter's birthday, tracking down this person instead of being with his daughter. And now his partner is dead too, because of him essentially. So, end of act two. Act three opens up and it's 2006. Again, nine years later, Locke is now a private investigator, supremely obsessed with finding Raya because he knows she's coming back. He's no longer on the police force anymore and he's looking like a scraggly scallywag. Amy is a teenager now. She's in high school Um, and she doesn't live with him because he's that much of a deadbeat. He's that much of a wreck, not a deadbeat, but a wreck that she doesn't even live with him. He's not on the police department anymore. Um, He's an investigator and he's devoting most of his time to finding Raya and he's supporting his research by being an investigator. And so, um, yeah, Amy lives with Holt now and the relationship between Lockhart, Locke and Holt is strained as, as it is strained with his daughter. And yeah, so it's clear that he's obsessed. Holt believes that he's also obsessed and long story short, guess what? The killings happen again. Only this time, Holt is closer now. He gets even closer to understand, to finding her and understanding more about her and why she's doing it. Um, and more leads from 88 keep popping up and he's following those leads. Um, we see that it appears that he's mostly living out of his car. Or at least he. it seems like maybe he has a place, but he spends a lot of time in his car. 
um, in 2006. And so anyway, so long story short, he tracks down a lead. Um, yes, he tracks down a lead where he finds a woman who was at one time connected with a victim, one of the first victims from 88 of Raya, who ended up being um, like a white nationalist. Um, And so she was a white nationalist at the time, but she was like, I was young and dumb. And so anyway, she explains what her and her boyfriend were doing. And in fact, they were were, um, essentially mailing a lot of literature out to a bunch of different people trying to activate a bunch of folks into joining their resistance, basically. Um, And so, yeah, so the only way that Locke arrives at this conclusion is because he's stolen Holt's badge um, to be able to run this search. And of course, you know what happens. Um, Holt, uh, Locke is in the middle of running down another lead and he gets close to finding Raya, Raya, and he actually does find Raya. And she essentially tells him that she doesn't have a ton of time. Um, and you get the sense that she's about to leave again, um, jump dimensions again. Um, and so he chases her down. There's a whole car scene. And the third act ends with her running into, she's on this beach. And then it doesn't occur to me until this very moment, it didn't occur to me this very moment that she was probably on the same beach where she crashed the plane um, in act two. Um, But anyway, so she runs into this, I forgot what this, it's a big old pipe that essentially drain, it's like a um, drainage water pipe. Anyway, she jumps into this pipe. Um, She disappears into this pipe after a long chase Um, after concluding a long chase with um, Locke. And Locke is like, oh, Ben, I got you, I got you. I know where you're going to be, and she disappears. So she disappears, and he's not able to go get her. Um, Well, he tries to follow her, and he sees that she jumps into this pod that's that's accessible through this drainage pipe. And anyway, there's like something like a sewer, and she jumps into something like an egg, and the egg fills up with some sort of liquid, and there's a, you know, wham, wham, boom, and it disappears and hurt with it. And he comes out of the drainage pipe and Holt and all the police officers are there to arrest him um, because he stole Holt's badge and all of that stuff. And just when we thought, you know, in the third act, there was a scene right before um, Locke stole Holt's badge where Locke, uh, Holt told him, like, you need help, man. You, your, your daughter doesn't even live with you. Your daughter lives with me and you don't have a relationship with her. Get just pull yourself together. And then Holt, or, um, Locke is like, yeah, I do need to get myself together. And he breaks down and cries. And then Holt goes and gives him a hug. And it's at that point, of course, that he steals, that Locke steals Holt's badge. And that's how he's able to go find the woman that was with the guy that was one of the first victims and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so of course, Holt tracks him down because he's been following him. Um... And the third act ends with Holt being, uh, having arrested Locke because Locke is out of control. The fourth scene opens up and it is 2015. 2015. Holt has managed, Locke has managed to hold on to his patrol car that he had oh so many years ago, that Crown Vic that he had oh so many years ago in 1988 when he was a beat cop or maybe 2006 
when he was a, a detective. Anyway, he is now fully living out of that car. He has barely any relationship with Amy anymore. Amy's a grown woman now. Um, and, um, yeah, he's a grown woman now and, or she's, Amy's a grown woman now with her own life and Holt is old and Locke is old. Um, and so the scene opens up and uh, Locke is on the beach, essentially again, living out of his car and any way that you would live out of your car of a Crown Vic. And he is perched right outside of that big old drainage pipe where Raya had disappeared. Remember she jumped into that and she got into her egg and disappeared? Well, he's there nine years later and surprise, surprise, she pops out and he's there. He's, um, he's there and they have a conversation. And, and in 2015, I guess we don't see more of her expert, her, um, we don't, we don't see Raya doing her crime spree because, um, when Locke tries to have a conversation with Locke, I keep Lockhart, I keep calling him Locke, it's Lockhart or Lockhart. It's Lockhart. I'm going to call him Lockhart. I've been calling him Locke this entire time, but it's Locke, Lockhart. Anyway, he's waiting for her to come out and Amy, I guess the important thing that I should be mentioning is yes, he's in 2015. He's on the beach living out of his car, waiting for Raya to come out of the drainage pipe like he knows she's gonna. Um, but Amy is trying to reconnect with him. Amy is telling her that she wants her, he wants him, she wants him in her life because she's about to have a baby and, you know, she wants her child to know her grandfather, their, their child's grandfather. And so anyway, he's listening to this message that Amy left and then he's, it goes black. And he wakes up and of course he's been kidnapped by Dr. Rayu, who goes on this stupid monologue. It's not a stupid monologue. It's just an interesting monologue where he's like, yeah, I was at first, you know, long story short, he knows who Raya is and he um, wants her to keep doing her work because he's found out why she's doing what she's doing. Long story short, again, remember what I told you, the whole through line is if you knew, if you could pinpoint the exact time and the, ex- the exact time frame that a person, if you could track a person down before they became the cult leader, if you could track a person down before they, before they began to spread their message of hate and you could eliminate them before they can, you would ultimately change the world for the better. And wouldn't you want to take that opportunity? Essentially, it's so uh, Rayo um, tells, tells uh, Lockhart that while Lockhart is essentially tied up in the back of a van, Um, And anyway, Lockhart is essentially a mad scientist. He's a mad, he's, he's turned into the quintessential mad scientist who, what we didn't know up until this point, but in actuality, he didn't create the, he, he essentially created, you know how in the beginning I told you in the act one that people's brains were, they were hemorrhaging, they were hemorrhaging and dying. Um, and I think the part, a part that I left out was that in their hemorrhaging, they were, their brain was essentially, essentially liquefying and come and, and hemorrhaging with them, uh, coming out of their ears, coming out of their nose and, and eyes and stuff like that. Um, which is very gross. And I apologize for not giving you that heads up, but anyway, um, so 
what we didn't know was that because of the space-time continuum, and again, the movie kind of jumps around, kind of like me in explaining things. But anyway, the movie jumps around, and long story short, um, let me just take my time here. Okay, let me speed this thing up. So long story short, Dr. Rayu is the person that created the essentially the liquid that Raya is injecting into these people that ultimately kills them. What is more, he's created the delivery system. So the 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 thing that she's using, he's created that to not only allow this substance to be injected into these people, but he's also created it in such a way that you can you can um, it's on a, a delivery release. So it's not instant. This this substance that Raya is injecting into these people, it's not an instant death. It is death at the will of the person that activates the substance. And that person, it, the person who developed that technology is Dr. Rayu. And anyway, Dr. Rayu knows that, um, uh, that Lockhart is tracking Raya because he wants to stop her. And Dr. Rayo decides he's going to stop Lockhart. Now, what I didn't tell you is at the end of Act 3, while Lockhart is being arrested by Holt, um, Dr. Rayu is up on a perch watching it happen. So, and it gives you the sense that he's been watching Lockhart this entire time. And so, of course, while Lockhart has been watching out for Raya, Dr. Rayu has been watching out for Lockhart. And so this is how he's able to capture him in the third act. And so anyway, obviously, you know what happens. Lockhart escapes from Dr. Rayu. And actually, I believe he ends up killing Dr. Um, Rayu. Um, And... Actually, I don't think he kills him. No, 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 he doesn't kill Dr. Rayu. So the idea is that Dr. Rayu is allowed to continue making the delivery mechanism and the, the substance itself. And so, but the thing that he learns is that he runs into Rhea. And Rhea, flat out, in, this, in the third act, at the end of the third act, Rhea tells Lockhart in the best way possible, and I did enjoy this scene, in the best way possible, I'm actually your granddaughter. I am the child who's being born right now, and you need to go be with my mother. Um, and actually, you were the one that sent me on this quest. You were the one that sent me on this quest to go get these people. You come around to this idea. I know you're trying to stop me right now, and I know it's hard to believe, but you actually sent me on my quest. And blue, blah, blue, you know, long story short, in this instant, this is, I did not necessarily love this, but in this instant, Lockhart um, recognizes that, oh, shoot, um, this is my granddaughter. I got to keep my granddaughter alive. I'm not going to hurt my granddaughter. Um, And also, wait a minute, I killed you in 1988. So you got to undo that too. And it's at this point where the timeline really misses me because for whatever reason, she can go back in time and kill these people, but she cannot go back in time and not die. And I don't know why that is, and the movie doesn't really explain it, except she, except to say that time goes forward, it doesn't go backward. And I'm like, but it does go backward because you went to that time frame. You came back to a time frame. So if you wanted to undo a thing, you could come back and go to 1987 if you wanted to. I like, I don't get it anyway. Um, 
But again, it's a movie, so you can't think too deeply. You can't look too deeply into that thing. So anyway, moving forward. So I guess the last thing I want to say is act four really is um, more than nine years into the future. Again, because we ended on 2015. In 2015, Lockhart meets Amy and recognizes Amy's daughter and recognizes Amy's daughter to be Raya. Um, So anyway, I guess the thing that I want to... The thing that I want to share is that in the very beginning of the film, the thing that I didn't tell you is that the very, very opening scene is that of a building. You're inside an office building and it's clear that this building has been uh, uh, just destroyed by an explosion and all the nearby buildings have been destroyed by an explosion. Well, we learn in act four is that the seeds of anarchy were, were, being um, planted in 1988 by that white supremacist, white supremacist who wanted to create a movement of hate, basically. And so those seeds began to bloom and grow and bloom into these mighty trees that ultimately led to a civil war in 2027 where the world ends. Um, and so in 2024, um, Raya is activated as a, I don't know why her age is important, but Lockhart activates a 20, no, not at 2024. The civil war begins in 2024 and it has continued until 2042. And um, Lockhart convinces his granddaughter, Raya, to travel through time because that uh, they have that ability now in 2042 to travel through time and go get that guy go get go stop the movement the seeds of of hate that this guy was trying to sow um through the most an interesting delivery system which was a book so books about presidents and he would slip in those books about presidents his propaganda message he would type it out he and his girlfriend would type out these propaganda messages slip them in books and then that's how they would pass the message from books um, that seemed to be just about the presidents. And anyway, um, so yeah, in 2042, a very elderly Lockhart activates his daughter, his granddaughter to go change history. And so that is essentially the story. And so at the end of, at the end of this film, we see that because she's murdered these people, that the scene that we opened with in the very beginning, at the very end, the last scene we see is that the undoing of those explosions. So the buildings are no longer destroyed. One by one, we see that the destruction that had happened to those buildings is being undone um, because Raya has killed every person that would have been part of spreading that hateful message. Um, And that concludes the movie. Um, I did not... I have, I don't like it now. Now that I've had an opportunity to talk about it, I don't like it. I feel, I felt like I was tricked into thinking that this movie was going to be a cool sci-fi film. It had cool elements in it. Um, the, the timeline itself, the idea of jumping back in time to kill a thought and the, the holder of the thought before it took shape and would grow and twist and change into being a civil war, um, was an interesting one, but it has its flaws. Like, okay, so you killed that one thought. He, they're not the only ones that have the thought, have a thought of, distra- like, come on, like, 
look at our own world. Um, if you get rid of Hitler, I don't know that another person doesn't jump up in his place somewhere else. Um, like if you're going to go with that logic, you also have to contend with the idea that you might create another tyrant somewhere else. Um, anyway, but I did like the idea, just it had flaws. And then the fact that they killed off Gene, I was confused as to why they did that. The fact that they mistreated Amy the entire time, that was so confusing to me. And then the fact that this grandfather activated his own granddaughter to be a murderer set her up to be an assassin, which was, was bizarre to me. It just felt like the women, I don't know. It just felt like this movie was, I got where they were trying to go, but I just didn't love how they got there. Um, and the different twists and turns that it tried to take you through. Um, it was just bizarre to me. And, and again, the women were treated pretty poorly in this film throughout. Um, and we're supposed Lockhart is meant to be the good guy that was flawed but still a good guy, and I don't buy it. You turned your granddaughter into a serial killer. Um, You totally neglected your daughter. And when your wife needed you, you you know she was about to go in labor. You were told she went into labor. And you chased a murderer for your career instead of going to your wife's bedside. I don't know, maybe I'm being too harsh, but I did not love this movie, and I feel duped. And maybe I'm being harsh because I thought the movie was going to be more about Raya than it was about Lockhart. Um, Anyway, I did enjoy Michael C. Hall's accent because he played Holt. I did enjoy that. Um, I did enjoy Bokeem Woodbine because as much as you try to age him, that man is timeless. Um, And I did enjoy seeing Cleopatra um, because her name is Cleopatra. And I've never seen her before in anything else. But I love the fact that her name was Cleopatra is her government name is Cleopatra. I love that. Outside of that, I don't know what to do with this film. I will never watch it again, I don't think. Um, And hopefully I can bring, I will talk about something else that I love next week. Um, And one of the things that I've been trying to watch, but I don't like musicals, is uh, Jingle Jangle. I'm going to get through it, I promise. I'm going to get through it. I'm going to watch it. I'm going to get through the dance numbers and it's going to be cool because I do really want to see it because Jingle Jangle was directed, produced and directed, I believe, by a Morgan State grad. And so got to support him because Morgan State, I can literally walk up the street to Morgan State University. Um, So I want to support him. I want to support this film. And plus, 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 man, you got all of my favorite black stars in it or like a lot of them. Um... And uh, you got, what's her name? Oh, Claire, the woman that played Claire, Felicia Rashad. You got Felicia Rashad in here with some locks. Was Cicely Tyson gray in the front and black in the back? Come on. I'm, you, I'm not going to watch it. I'm not going to watch it for Cicely. I'm not going to watch it for, um, for uh, Felicia. Of course I'm going to watch it for Miss Felicia. Anyway. Um, anyway, anyway, I've talked enough. Um, this sh- is getting long. Thank you so much for listening. Um, thank you for sharing and listening to other episodes. I appreciate you. Um, yeah. So yeah, thank you for liking this and receive, uh, rating this thing favorably. I appreciate you. Um, I hope you're doing well. I hope your family's doing well, your chosen family's doing well, your friends, your loved ones, and have a great day. And I hope you finish that project. All right. Until next time.